So, Father, would you, would you help us see? Would you help us understand these words? Some of this is a little confusing. And uh, so I, I pray for help and clarity. And I, I pray that we would truly uh, grow in grace together. Lord, I, I'm not going to be the one who's going to help grow anybody. So we're going to need your spirit to come teach all of us. We want to see Jesus lifted up. We want to see your faithfulness. We want to be led together. And uh, we're going to need a lot of help if all that's going to happen here this morning, because that's a supernatural thing. So we're asking for it. We're asking for wisdom. We commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, with the National Day of Prayer coming our way, we're looking for, uh, to, to celebrate unity, right? We, we are pursuing being one. And that's what the National Day Prayer is all about. And you heard earlier in the service, we are inviting you back to come here Thursday night, 7 o'clock, to pray that we would have unity. But we can't offer to someone else what we don't have. Right? So uh, I am not at all looking at any person or trying to apply these verses to somebody, but by the same token, we, we do have to take these verses which are applied to a church and say and ask this question, are we walking in the kind of unity that Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians? So he's at a place where he, uh, there, there's been some issues, there's been some controversy in the church. And uh, I'm not saying there's controversy in the church. So as I kind of apply this to us today, I don't want anyone to feel like, is he talking about something specific? Guys, I I honestly uh, am so humbled and amazed at the unity. This week, we had someone come from the Forest Lake District to our office. Gary and I met with them, and they talked about the, the unity that is apparent in this church. Okay, so praise God for that and that beautiful thing. And yet I know at the same token, by the same token, we have to always be humbling ourselves under the word of God and saying, okay, but, but let these words teach me. And that's where I'm at. I want these words to teach me and to teach you. Okay? So with that said, Paul has been struggling with this little church plant in Corinth for quite a while. So Corinth is a big old city, and they used to use the word Corinth to talk negatively about people to imply that they are, were immoral sexually. So you know how we use the word sodomy, uh, and it comes from the, the city of Sodom. And the same was true here in New Testament times of the word uh, Corinthian. And so you can see the kind of big old city that they were trying to plant this little church in. Keep in mind, too, that the, the Greeks that inhabited Corinth there, they weren't, they weren't the kind of people that knew much about the Old Testament. So in Jerusalem, there's all these religious people that kind of knew what the story was of the Old Testament, and they could get on board quickly. In Corinth, not so much. Very few people knew the Word of God. And so here we have this fledgling congregation in an immoral place that was just beginning to understand the teaching of the Old Testament and certainly the teaching of Paul as well. You can imagine the trouble. He had written them now. This is his fourth letter to them. It's called 2 Corinthians, obviously. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, Paul says, you remember the first letter I wrote to you about some of the issues in the church. So Paul was, he was 
laboring for holiness and unity in the church even before he wrote 1 Corinthians. And then in 1 Corinthians, chapters 6 and 7, he was confronting some pretty, gro- some pretty immoral stuff. I'm not going to get into it here because we're studying 2 Corinthians, and so that means I can just tell you, go read 1 Corinthians, all right? But chapter 7, some pretty ugly things that he's confronting. Again, it's immoral conduct in the church. And then in chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he's saying, and, and here's the other problem we have in church, you've got some rich guys and you've got some poor guys, and uh, they're not working it together, and instead of working it out together, everybody's kind of jealous, and the rich people are having food and not inviting the poor people, and the poor people come and they're hungry. What's going on there? And so he's confronting all of these sort of the one-upmanship in 1 Corinthians. Now in our passage today, you see that between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote another letter. If you look down at chapter 2, verse 3, he said, man, I wrote you this tearful letter I, through anguish. It was hard. And now here he is writing 2 Corinthians. I tell you all that to say that in that little fledgling church plant in Corinth, there was a minority rebel group of people who did not like Paul They did not want his authority over them. And this whole passage today is about their accusations and their their, uh, dissatisfaction with Paul. And in essence, this, this small minority rebel group was trying to say, forget about Paul. Paul, don't listen to Paul. We're here. So listen to us. We'll tell you what the scriptures say. We'll show you how, you know, we, we should be living together. And they were trying to gain control of this little local church. And Paul was not going to let it go. Think about this fourth letter. I don't know if you've ever been in a controversy, and of course back then they rode to Lot because they couldn't always get there face to face. A fourth letter where he is begging them and pleading with them and encouraging them to submit themselves to God. So that's the background, and that's where we find ourselves. Within the context of, of 2 Corinthians, I just want you to know we're, we're just starting out. Verses, or chapters 1 through 7 are all about Paul saying, hey, church, I really am an apostle, and you really should take what I'm saying here pretty seriously. You should take it seriously. Chapters 8 and 9 in 2 Corinthians were him saying, it's time for the, the majority of people in that little church plant in Corinth, it's time for the majority to repent and take this seriously. And then chapters 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 in 2 Corinthians said, if you don't repent, uh, you're going to be judged. And so he was like throwing down all through 2 Corinthians, trying to bring peace to the church, trying to put them in a position where they would uh, show love and respect to one another and they would walk in unity. So all of that kind of background for where we are here now in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and now we're at verse 12, okay? So guys, while you minister in the church, there will be moments when you are criticized. And while you live amongst believers... There, there will be accusations that take place. Paul is facing an accusation here today, which we'll look at in just a minute. And, and so as we serve, we're going to endure those things. And here's the question, how are we going to respond in that moment in a way that honors God? So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 
verse 12. Here's, here's how we're going to say it. Uh, that while addressing criticism as you serve, live out the character of Jesus as you await the return of Jesus. So here Paul is addressing the criticism. And he says this in verse 12, for our boast is this. Note this, number one, right off the bat, the criticizers were coming after Paul and look what he did right away. He said, hey, remember, uh, I'm a part of a group. This isn't just me you're criticizing. I was there with Paul, or excuse me, I was there with Silas. I was there with Timothy. And guys, if you're in a position where you feel like you're being criticized, you need people around you to help you. You need to share the story with others. Paul brought the accusation to Timothy and Silas and said, guys, look at what they're saying about me. Look at what they're saying about us. There's a big difference. In saying the words, look at what they're saying about me versus look at what they're saying about us. And if you're in a position where you're experiencing accusations in your life, you need to put yourself in accountable relationships so that you don't feel like the criticism is coming against you, but it's coming against us. So, Paul wrote to them and reminded them that even as they were criticizing, this was a group project, not a solo, not a solo album. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. And so Paul appeals to a conscience. And in essence, we have this controversy in the church, and now Paul appear, appeals to the, the highest arbiter he can, and that is his, his mindset as it comes to as it comes to those accusations. Your conscience is crucial, and it is a judge. Guys, if we're going to, and this is a principle for working things out in a controversial situation, not only in the church, but in your marriage, in your neighborhood, in your work setting, right? Your conscience is a high authority, and you need to appeal to your conscience to, to uh, a judge between you and others from time to time. Now, here is the problem. Your conscience is not perfect. And we live in a world that talks about, well, you know, I, I have this inner voice. I have this inner spark of divinity. And uh, I just need to be at one and at peace with me. And that is the furthest thing from the concept of conscience that we can be appealing to here. Do you know that, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to rifle through like seven things that can happen to your conscience that can really mess it up. And if we're going to appeal to our conscience, we have to make sure that it is pure and right before the Lord. That it's not just this inner voice that told me so. Guys, if you're going to listen to an inner voice that told you so, you're going to really mess your life up. Because you're going to be doing all the, I'm going to be doing all the things that my inner self wants to do, which is nothing but selfishness. And that's not what Paul's talking, to, talking about when he's talking about conscience. When he's talking about conscience, he's talking about being in relationship with God and having a growing sense that this internal umpire is in harmony with the Scriptures. So here, this can happen to your uh, inner consciousness or your conscience. You can be, it can be defiled. The conscience can be defiled. That comes from Titus 1.15. Those who do not know God have a defiled conscience. That is a conscience that leads us to uh, contradict the ways of God. 
If you had a controversy in your marriage and your conscience is defiled, I really encourage you, don't appeal to your conscience. Appeal to the, the Word of God, yes. But So Titus 1.15 says that those outside of Christ, they don't care what the Word says. And so their conscience is defiled. We can have a weak conscience. That is, maybe we've started along with the Lord, but we're not developing quickly. And so we have many places in our conscience that are not in accordance or not in accord with the Word of God. We get that from 1 Corinthians 8, 12. A weak conscience, 1 Corinthians 8, 12. And a weak conscience in a Christian, it says in 1 Corinthians 8, 12, it will lead you to sin. We can have a seared conscience. A seared conscience, first, by the way, that's from 1 Timothy 4.2. A seared conscience is when I put myself in a position where I do the same activity so often, like a habit or an addiction, and I no longer feel conviction from God in that area. It's like you've been working out in the, uh, a garden all day, and you've got this, this uh, built-up uh, skin on your, on your hands, And so your conscience is seared much like a callus on your hand when you do a lot of work. You don't feel it anymore. And that can happen to your conscience. We can have a a purified conscience. Uh, And so in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14 and 10, Hebrews chapter 10, it says, you know, that we, we walk in this world with an evil conscience And yet the work of God in our life is to sprinkle that conscience clean by the power of what Jesus has done for us. And so he cleans our conscience and purifies it. We can have a good conscience. Acts 23.1 A good conscience is one that is more and more coming into accord with the word of God. And so as you enter into a controversy with the people around you, a neighbor or spouse or, or anybody else, what you need is not to be able to tell your story well and defend yourself. Is that, that's what I do when a controversy comes up. I am really good at having my first reaction be, no, I did not do that. That was not what I tried to do. That is not my intention. You are twisting this. And so Nikki and I get in a disagreement. She can pretty much know that the, the, my first tactic is going to be to cover myself up and try to tell her she's wrong and I'm right. And by the way, Paul didn't do that. You notice here the, the clear conscience, he, as he appeals to his conscience, he, we're going to see this in just a minute, how he, he takes time to let the word of God make his case rather than just simply trying to defend himself. Uh, but lastly, uh, the last conscience word, we can have a clear conscience. Acts 24, 16, and in this passage here today, we can have a clear conscience, meaning I have heard the accusations, I have heard what you're saying, and I am saying to you, I, I don't think so. That didn't happen, or it didn't happen the way you remember it. So here's what's going on in the text today. Paul's detractors, his critics, are saying, we've got some things against you. Your actions must have been immoral. And so you say, well, where do you get that? 2 Corinthians chapter, 12, chapter 1, verse 12. Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, we behaved in the world with, ho- with simplicity. And, and the word could be even uh, uh, with holiness there. And so... 
what he was saying is, you know what? Uh, here's, you guys are saying my behavior was wrong, and I'm saying I brought my behavior before the Lord, and I've asked him to, sh- to show me. And uh, uh, here's the question. Did I do something that was wrong? Did I break a law of God? Did I transgress a principle of God's word in what I did? Paul's detractors are saying, you must be in sin because look at your life. You got no money. You're, you're going from church to church. You, you, you have been beaten. You have been imprisoned. You have been shipwrecked. And like Job's friends, Paul's detractors are saying here, there must be something we aren't seeing if God's treating you like that. Your life is bad. And so uh, the, the minority rebels are saying to the church, don't trust him. Look at his life. It's a mess. And Paul's saying, I've got a clear conscience before the Lord. The behavior, what I did while I was among you, was right. What about motives? Because that's the second part of the controversy. Why did you do what you do, what you did? Sometimes um, that is hidden. And sometimes that doesn't come out until we start to talk about why you did what you did. And so Paul's conscience, uh, uh, his motives, the, the detractors are basically saying, you know what, he, what he did, he's going from, from church to church, and here's what Paul is doing. He's kind of addressing everybody with this authority, and he wants everybody to see that he's this apostle, and so he's needlessly exercising his authority so he can have power and influence over us, and he's going from church to church trying to get money. And so Within the church, you can tell there's going to be controversy as this this minority group is saying, forget about Paul. Look at the kind of person he is. He's going to come back here. He's going to try to get money from us. He's going to try to tell us what's up with that. Uh, And and so it was about his motives. That's what they were criticizing there. So if you're going to fight fair in your relationships, you're going to have to master your motives. Why do you do the things you do? There's the issue of intentional versus unintentional. Why'd you do that? Well, I honestly didn't know. I didn't know that you were growing. I I did walk on your grass, that's true. I didn't know you were growing blue fescue championship grass for for the big, you know, national fair. I didn't know that. And so, yeah, I did do that, but I didn't know I shouldn't, right? The motive is, is what I'm doing. Is it aimed at the glory of God? Boy, you know what? I am a, uh, uh, is it aligned with truth? Did it, does it prioritize the needs of others? And as I said, when, when we have controversy in our marriage, I am the master of making myself believe that I did it for the good of others, that I'm in the right, that my motives are always right. And you know what? Sometimes when I've got some time to consider the situation, I can finally come to the place where I go, you know what? My motives were not right. I was careless. I, I definitely knew that that was the last piece of pie, and that's her favorite. I definitely went and ate it quickly before she could get to it. I was putting my needs first. It was about me. And so the, the motives with which we do things, was it for the love of God? Because here's the flip side of that, that it's very easy to be unintentional. 
It's very easy to be aimed at my own glory, and I didn't even recognize it. It's very easy to be bearing false witness, and the question comes up, well, why did you do that? Well, you know, and, and so I quickly spin it to say the things that that person wants to hear, right? To prioritize myself, to prioritize my pleasure, to prioritize my comfort and my ease. And Paul's saying, okay, you know, I, keep in mind, this is over the course of many weeks and months, so, so the, the accusations against Paul, he's had for quite a while, and he's writing letters, so he's able to think through this and say, okay, in the area of sin, in the area of morality and conduct, no. I did not do anything wrong in that situation. Because if you're going to fight fair, you're going to have to have a conscience that can, that can judge whether or not you... you committed a sin, whether you broke one of God's laws, whether you hurt the relationship. Why? Why did you do what you do? Paul was going to Corinth, giving his life. He, was, he lived there for 18 months as he was planting this church, a long time. And he was there relationally with them for a long time. He knew them well. He was not there to get money. He was not there to needlessly show power. He was there because there was a calling of God on his life to give up ease and comfort and go to a hard, godless city and preach the gospel. And so he could say clearly to the church at Corinth, no, I'm not. I wasn't there for, for money. Are you kidding me? There's a lot better ways to make money than this. And in fact, he, he'll say next week in our passage as we look at it, uh, he'll prove that he was not there for money. But then the third thing, the doctrine. You know, the uh, false teachers at the church in Corinth, they were saying he's teaching, what he's teaching is too confusing, and uh, he's, he's, he's not making sense. He's a false teacher. And so they said that Paul was the false teacher. And, and so here's the third area. If It's, a, it's about uh, actions, and it's about motives, and now it's about words too. Your controversy with your spouse, how do you use your words? What did you say? What did you mean to say? Right? And so Paul is saying, you know what? In terms of doctrine, I taught the truth. I taught you the truth. And then he gets to the results. And we're going to look at the very end today. We're going to see what the results of the situation were. And sometimes that's, no matter how how uh, innocent we are in all the other areas, sometimes the results are something that we can own. Because Paul is saying that the results of the situation in Corinth is it was pain in the church. And he, he says here, look, I, I didn't do the wrong thing. I was motivated to do the right thing. I taught you the truth. But the reality is that my presence in the situation did bring pain in the church. And I own that. I did bring you pain. And we're going to look at that as we go. So do you you have a clear conscience? I'm not talking about, uh, and look look now in verse 12, for our boast is just the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. That word sincerity there is light judged. The, the concept of light judged is you're in the market throughout the day. You pick up the pot. Uh, Nikki and I this week were, were, were looking at different cars around the city. And whenever you're looking at cars around the city, that Carfax report, 
And that'll tell you the truth about the car, won't it? Where it's been. But in the marketplace, you pick up the, uh, the, the cheats. The cheats would, would take a uh, piece of pottery with a crack in it, they'd fill it in with wax, and then they would paint over it so that it looked very smooth. And they would sell it to you as a first-rate piece of... Uh, you know, kitchenware, I don't know. And, and so you, you have this pot, and there's, there's trouble in it. But so here's what you would do. The light judge, you would take that pot, and you would hold it up to the light, and the, the sunlight would shine through, and you could see if there was any places where the, the clay was thin and where the crooked marketer or the crooked merchant put the wax in to fill in and to act like it was the truth, to act like it was good. Right? And so he, he said, look, we, we behave with you with, with that kind of godly sincerity. We were the real deal. Listen, not by earthly wisdom. Paul's conscience isn't governed by the, the popular opinion of the day. He didn't, just didn't do what the culture said was the right thing to do. He brought his, his conscience back to the word of God, and you should too. And again, the most powerful tool you have in bringing peace and harmony to any conflict is not that you can tell your story well. It's not that you can defend your, your uh, intentions well. It's not that you're smart and you can win a debate. You have to put all of that stuff away and come to the place and just say this, is the word of God informing my conscience so that I approve the things that God approves, I disapprove the things that God disapproves, and my conscience more and more is in complete align with what God has revealed to be right. Then take the accusation and compare it. And that's what Paul did here in our passage today. The actions, the motives, the doctrine, his words, and the results. Is your conscience pure? Is it good? Is it clear? And if not, we return to the scriptures. We go back and we ask God to, to change us and to uh, help us to grow. Well, here's why. I mean, if we look now at verse 14, uh, there's a partial acknowledgement of this relationship, but on the day of the Lord, at the end of verse 14, on the day of the Lord Jesus, uh, guys, we're on the same team. He said he's confident that, that we will be there together, and, and Paul would boast in them, and they would boast in him. And so if we are in Christ Jesus together, we need to be able to solve some of these conflicts and walk in joy and walk in unity. So while addressing this criticism, guys, you and I, we're, we're living out the character, the character of Jesus, even as we await his coming together. Uh, while addressing that criticism, we also hold out the promises of God with integrity. And what I mean to say when I say that is that we are living, we are holding out the faithfulness of God in the way that we respond and live. Be, be a godly example to the people around you. And so now we're going to get in a little bit to the actual, like, what were they saying? What were his critics saying about Paul that was kind of catching some traction? And so look at verse 15. Now he, he changes the, word, the uh, personal pronoun there. You see, he was saying we, we, we. And now he knows that the accusation is against him only. And so he starts using the, the term I 
here. The personal pronoun is, is now I in these next several verses. I was sure of this. Here's what he's saying. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating? So if you're like me, the first time you read that, I was like, what? What? What is that talking about? I did not get that at all. So I had to go and do some uncovering. And, and here's the, the bottom line. At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul said this. I want you to imagine a, a horseshoe, okay? We're all, and there's a big bay in between the horseshoe. It's actually a, a, you know, like a wide expanse of water. And so over here, Paul's been ministering, and he's saying, look, here's what I want to do. Uh, so Corinth is way at the bottom of this part of the horseshoe, and Macedonia is this region up at the top of the horseshoe. So Paul's saying, uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians, he said, I want to come all the way through Macedonia. I'm going to visit you guys for a while, and then I'm going to go back up and, and minister in Macedonia for a while, and then I'm going to come back to you before winter, and then I'm going to, I'm going to sail back to Judea. All right, so I don't know if that was clear or not, but basically that was his plan. This was going to take some months where I'm going to come up and around, I'm going to come down and visit you, and then I'll go back to Macedonia, and then I'll come back to you a second time. When it says there in verse uh, 15, a second experience of grace, that's what he's talking about, a second visit. He's going to come again. But what actually happened was, uh, he didn't come to them that first time. So instead, he did what most of us would have done. He went up, he ministered in Macedonia, then he continued down to Corinth, and then he was going to move on to Judea. So instead of a second experience of grace, there was only a one-time visit. He was only able to come to the church once. So here's what happened. His detractors were saying, well, if Paul can't even communicate with us what his travel plans are accurately, you can't take what he says about Jesus seriously. Have you ever had somebody take a charge against you like that that is ridiculous and small and then extrapolate it into every area of your life as if that were a real, natural, logical next step? But that's what was happening. And the uh, detractors in the church were starting to gain uh, some traction in the church. And some of the majority people in the church were starting to go, yeah, that's a good point. Paul told us he was going to come. He told us he was going to show up. He didn't. And so maybe we can't take anything he taught us seriously if we can't even take his word about his, his plan seriously. Now, what do you do when you're faced with that sort of thing? Uh, I, if you're like me you are tempted to give up. Like, really? Is this where we're at now? Where I spent my life there, Paul lived there for 18 months, he gave of himself sacrificially, and now we're at this place where they're literally saying maybe we can't trust anything he said. I would have been, this is the fourth time that Paul's written to them, and he's trying to make it right, and he's trying to speak some sense into them, and he's trying to bring harmony to the church. Fourth time, I would have been tempted to give up. So here, here's a bad plan when you're trying to make peace in a controversy, to just give up, to go radio silent. 
you're in a situation right now where there's controversy in your life, or if there's controversy between you and someone in the church, can I just encourage you, don't go silent. Don't live with, they go to first service, I go to second service. Don't live with, oh, they're there at the end of the hallway, I'm not going that way today. I don't want to deal with them. That's what I would be tempted to do. And that's what your flesh wants to do, but Paul says here, we're not going to operate in the flesh. We're not going to let that happen here. We are going to work for love and kindness, and we're going to work this thing out. And so radio silence that comes, especially radio silence that comes from apathy, I just don't care anymore. Don't let that be your your tactic when it comes to working these things out. Personal tax, that's another bad plan. You know what? Paul could have easily said, look, they want to start talking about theology. They want to start talking about words. Okay, let's, let's go. And he could have kind of rolled up his sleeves or pushed up his robe or whatever he had on, and he could have written some harsh stuff showing them how he was in the right and they were in the wrong. He didn't go there. We're going to see what he does in just a moment. He didn't get into this war, war of words and technicality. He said, she said. By the way, if you're ever in an argument with your wife or your husband, and you're in a situation where it comes down to, when you, three weeks ago, you said this. Okay, listen. That, that is a bad plan to go down that road. Because one of you remembers it well, Nikki, and the other one doesn't, me, right? And so getting to this whole, like, what actual words were said into, into verb, the verbal air uh, three weeks ago, it just, don't, please don't go there. Paul doesn't go there. And he has written record here, right? What does Paul do? He says, look, let's focus today on the main thing. Let's not go back three weeks ago and what words were said then. Obviously, if there were words that he remembered, he would need to make that right. But here's the good plan. He appealed to the fair-minded people of the group to realize, and he realized that some people were not going to be won over. He took personal responsibility with his clear conscience for everything about the, the, the controversy that he could. And, and then, if we look down now at... Uh, At verse 18, surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. And he goes right to the very character of God himself. Do you do that? So look, okay, the the words that were spoken, can we just, if they were wrong, you need to make them right. But could we just go, let's let's remind ourselves. Maybe if you're married, you, you go, let's just remind ourselves. We covenanted ourselves to stay in this relationship before God. That's the big picture. Let's go back to, okay, God is faithful. And within the context of every personal relationship, we can, we can go back to that and say, look, okay, there has been an issue and there has been a problem and there has been broken trust, but listen, let's go back to what we know. God is faithful. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. And so Paul is making the case that he didn't vacillate. Notice the the words that he's using here, being accused of vacillating, he continually used words of substance and constancy over and over. Verse 15, he used the word sure. It's sure. And in verse 18, he used the word faithful. And in verse 
uh, 20, he talks about God's constant promises. And in verse 21, he talks about the fact that we are established. And in verse 22, 21, he talks about the fact that we are anointed by God. And in verse 22, he talks about a guarantee. As if you're accused of something, it's a good idea to go back to the character of God and emphasize the uh, characteristic that you are seeking to put forth, right? And that's what Paul does in this passage. The Son of God, he emphasizes what what he proclaimed among them. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Again, now he's including Sylvanius and Timothy. That's Sylvanius is, is, uh, Sylvanius is, is Silas. The Son of God is not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. Now look at the Trinity here. Look at, look at how he goes back and says, let's just focus in on the character of God in the midst of this controversy. Verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And he, in essence, announces to this group of people, can we focus on the main thing? We were lost. We were enemies. We were broken. We received promises throughout the scriptures that God would heal us. We received promises throughout the scripture that God could forgive us. We received promises throughout the scripture that though we were this orphan in a far off country and far from him, that he would bring us close, that he would adopt us, that he would show us love, that he would be kind to us. And in Jesus Christ, all of those promises that God made to us find their yes. And Paul appeals to the message that he gave to the church early on. And friends, if you're going to find yourself in the midst of kind of some, some problem, some brokenness, some disagreement, some accusations, filter those accusations through your conscience and go back to the person and the work of Jesus Christ that we Experience together in Christ. Verse 21, and it is God who establishes us with you. And he's saying, look, the result of those promises perfected in Jesus is that we are one too. We are together on this. If you find yourself accused within the context of faithful service in the church, go to that person and remind them, we're, we're one here. We are one in Christ We are together on this because of the work and person of Jesus in verse 22. And he has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. While addressing criticism as you serve, hold out the promises of God with integrity. And thirdly, while addressing criticism as you serve, carry out your mission from God with love. Paul didn't get knocked away from the point of his ministry. There's trouble and there are problems in the church and yet he continued and now he's going to finally tell him, okay, now here's exactly why, as God is my witness, he says, here's why I didn't come. Here's why I changed my travel plan. I, I didn't come down and go back up to Macedonia and come back down for a second experience of grace. Let me tell you why. And here it is in, uh, in verse 23. But I call God to witness against me it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Now, 
Now, look how many times Paul uses the word joy and joy and rejoice in these verses. And I'll tell you right now, it's five different times. He's saying, look, as painful as this has been and as problematic as this has been, the goal of our Christian fellowship and sharing Christ together in our marriage or in particular here in our church, it should be that we have joy and we walk in joy. We work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. So what's he saying here? He's saying, look, as God is my witness, here's why I didn't come. I had written a hard, hard letter through tears and anguish. I sent it to you. There was only a year between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and that hard letter probably came about in the middle of that year. And Paul is saying, you, you guys haven't even had time to address the issues that I... We don't have that letter, by the way. We don't know what that letter is. We don't have it can't turn to it. But it was hard and full of anguish and grief. And he basically is saying here, you guys didn't even have time to respond to these charges yet. You didn't have time to allow the, the majority people to set things right in the church and, and make effort towards growing through this. You haven't had time to make it right. And if I had showed up when I said I was going to show up, there was going to be controversy and there was going to be difficulty and it was going to be hard and I was going to be this father checking in on his kids who basically found them doing the wrong thing still. And I didn't want to be a part of that. He said, I wrote you the letter because I, I do not want to drop the boom. If I come, I'll, I'll have to drop the boom. And I didn't want to do that. Get your, get your pens ready because my favorite quote of the week, and I've been really thinking this through, is from Augustine. Augustine said this, As severity is ready to punish the faults which it may discover. Let me say that again if you're writing it down. Severity is ready to punish the faults which it may discover. And by the way, can I just say, so often as a friend, as a dad, as a fellow church member, do you, do you find yourself there? Ready to punish the faults? Ready to drop the hammer? Ready to find your husband or wife in the wrong and make sure that they know you know they're in the wrong? Augustine says, look, if we're going to walk in grace, he says, as severity is ready to punish the faults which it may discover, so charity, that's love. So charity is reluctant to discover the faults which it must punish. And that's where Paul was. He had charity towards these people and he was reluctant to discover the faults at Corinth, that he knew that he would have to punish. He didn't want to go there. When I was in high school, a senior in high school, there was a uh, dance I wanted to go to. My mom and dad told me, no, you can't do that. No way. You're not doing that. And so I made up a whole story, lied to them, and uh, told my mom and dad I was at a friend's house that night, and I went to the dance uh, instead. That was a lot of bad planning on my part. Years later, I'm talking to my, now I'm a married man at this point. Years later, I'm, I'm uh, talking to my mom about that. And I said, yeah, you remember that one night? And she said, yeah. And uh, I said, do you know what I, I did that night? 
She said, yeah, you went to the dance that we told you not to go to. And I said, Mom, you never brought it up. And she said, yeah, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. I just wanted God to convict your heart. And that's where Paul is. Charity doesn't go looking to be as harsh as possible in the name of Jesus. That's not who we're going to be here, guys. We are in, in a place where if charity finds something that it needs to confront, we, we're going to come to the scriptures and we're going to say, yeah, that's what the scriptures say about that. We love you. And that's where Paul then emphasizes he loved them so much, he knew there were going to be times when he had to drop the boom, but he didn't want to drop it if he didn't have to drop it, right? And so he did not make that visit because he loved them so much that he wanted to give the Spirit time to work. We're closing up, and I'm going to just ask the question. I've got seven quick points of application. I'm going to read them through, and we're done, okay? Here we go. Uh, here's the question. What if we live like this in the church? And let me just say, personally, I've experienced a lot of this from you, and I hope you've experienced the same. That we have this kind of grace. We have this kind of love. What if we live like this? Here, here's the, the convictions we've had. I will not offer unfounded accusations against Christian brothers and sisters. I'm not doing that. Never doing that. And what if that's the kind of church family, and I think it is, but what if we continue in that? will not offer unfounded accusations against any Christian brother or sister. And the second is like it, I will not listen to unfounded accusations against brothers and sisters. If I am not certain the accusation is true with a couple of, uh, a couple of witnesses, I reject it fully and I will never, ever repeat it. Accusation comes, I'm not certain of it, there are no witnesses, there is no no substance to it whatsoever. I will never repeat it. When I hear of uncertain reports, I will turn quickly to the promises of God, which find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Instead of uncertainty, we turn to certainty, which is what God has for us in Jesus. When I come across a misunderstanding, fourthly, I will seek with a clear conscience to resolve it peacefully and in love. Fifthly, I will not seek to dig up dirt on others. I'm not going to be the harsh one. I'm not going to be the one looking for trouble that I can go and then punish. Even as a mom, I'm not going to go looking for that. If I find it, I'll, I will do what I have to do. I will not seek to dig up dirt on others, but instead I will uh, have toward others the same attitude, listen, that God has toward me. He didn't go looking for dirt. He found plenty of it without having to look for it. And he covers it over with love in Jesus. And when resolution is elusive, I will remain faithful to the calling that God has on us, us, to proclaim Christ Jesus in this place in whom all the promises of God find their yes. Listen, it's not as easy as just snapping your fingers and doing a few things and then resolution comes. I know life is com complex. Sometimes we don't resolve issues. And when we don't resolve issues, we remain focused on God's call on our life to proclaim Jesus Christ. God, guys, let this be true in this place. Let this be true in this place. And let's stand to be dismissed in a word of prayer.
Lord, we commit to you our hearts and ask for these things to be true and ask for you to help us walk in victory, unity. I praise you for this church family from which we, can be, we are so encouraged because there is so little, I don't know of any, of these kinds of things. And, and yet, Lord, we must humble ourselves under the word and learn from your word today. Teach us and encourage us. May we be a place so that when we come together on Thursday night and we pray for unity in the, in the uh, culture, we are praying for something that we already possess in the church, in Jesus. And we're going to be with you forever at your throne. We, we love that. So thanks and dismiss us with your blessing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.